0: Well, you don't have to know me for long to discover that I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. You might even say Lord of the Rings nerd. But that's okay. I'll take the title. But <laughs> Lord of the Rings, I had, and just for the record, I had read the books before there was any whisper of movies. I had my mom's, like, old. So there was, like, these 1970 paperbacks that are all beat up, and I read them, and I was so excited when the Lord of the Rings came out, because I was like, yes, that's what, I need to see these movies. And in the second movie, Two Towers, uh, there's this battle called the ba- Battle of Helm's Deep. And the people of Rohan, uh, their army has kind of been split off from the people. And there's this invading army of what they call orcs or goblins or uakai. Basically, it's kind of like, if you don't know what any, what any of those are, it's basically like a mean kind of monster thing that looks like, walks around like a person. But they're coming invading Rohan. And so the people in the capital are like, we need to get out of here because our, our army has been scattered. They're somewhere else. And so they go to this place called Helm's Deep, and it's like kind of their Alamo and they line the warriors up that they have, and they're like, okay, we're gonna defend this as best as we can, and there's this you know, moment where there's it's raining, it's at night, and you just hear the marching of this invading army coming, and they come, and they just stand there looking at Helm's Deep, and there's this huge wall that they have to get through, and so then they start this battle, and they're fighting, and they're fighting, and they're fighting, and eventually they breach through the wall, they get in the fortress, and then people are kind of huddled up in like kind of a not palace but it's like kind of the inner uh area of helms deep and they're all huddled in there and then they're like well let's just give it one let's just ride out uh, on our horses and let's meet this enemy and as they're riding out uh they're basically like this is kind of our last stand but then what happens is they're just surrounded by this army just these you know 20 people fighting it and they look up uh, to the east and they see this guy on a white horse and who's gandalf who's the wizard in this story and they see him, and it's like he had left five days earlier. And he said, on the fifth day, look to the east. I'm going to go find the, you know, the riders of Rohan, this army, your cavalry that has been separated from me. I'm going to go find them in five days, look to the east. And the fifth day, the sun's rising. They look to the east, and then with Gandalf comes this army of all these riders that are there. And then they're just like, Gandalf, he came. And then they ride down this hill into this invading army, and they just uh, cause them to retreat. And then the battle is won. And when I see this scene, when I watch it, it kind of gives me chills. And I've always thought, like, I'm just kind of a weird person that's too into this. But it kind of gives me this chills, these chills and sometimes uh, has, me, has tears in my eyes. And I thought it was just me, but it turns out that Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote these books, actually saw these as really powerful moments that we all uh, are looking for in our lives. He called them uh, a eucatastrophe, E-U-catastrophe. And it's from two Greek words. EU means good and catastrophe means like a sudden turn. And so it's a good catastrophe, a good sudden turn in what's happening. And Tolkien said, I coined the word eucatastrophe, uh, the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. And this is what one article said. He said, according to Tolkien, a eucatastrophe in a story often happens at the darkest moment when all seems lost, when the enemy seems to have won. A sudden joyous turn for the better can emerge. It delivers a deep emotional reaction in readers, a catch of the breath, a beat and lifting of the heart, he wrote. And another quote, a massive turn in fortune from a seemingly unconquerable situation to an unforeseen victory. And the way I kind of like summarize what they're saying is that uh, it's a happy ending when it seems furthest from possible. And what this leads you to is this joy. It's like, I have no idea how a happy ending can come out of this. And it's like, we're at the darkest moment all teams lost, and it's like a eucatastrophe is when all of a sudden a happy ending becomes possible when it seems seemed furthest from possible, and it leads us to joy. And this series uh, we're doing in the book of Exodus, which is the second book uh, in the Bible. Uh, it's part of the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And these books kind of were like the constitution for the people of Israel. These were like what set them up, told them who, they, who their God is, uh, what God has done for them, who they are now, and how they ought to live. And so it's kind of like their constitution. We're in the, the second book of Exodus, and it tells us Israel's origin story of how they were enslaved in Egypt, and how God came and brought them out of Egypt to the land that he had promised to their ancestors 400 years ago. And uh, this, these events happen, you know, like 1200 to 1500 BC, so over 3,000 years ago, which, you know, we kind of take Bibles for granted. The fact that the things written in here, even the earliest things, are like 2,000 years ago about Jesus, or 3,000 years ago that we're reading this Exodus story. And we like still read it today as something that's relevant in our lives. And really, this is a story about freedom freedom for Israel. But it points to the freedom that we all need because Genesis, the first of the Torah, which just is a Hebrew word which means instruction these instructions for who God is and what life is supposed to be like and what. Uh, how we follow him. The first book, Genesis, starts with the creation of everything and then the creation of human beings and how human beings, uh, we've gone down this path that has brought all the bad into this world that we see. And so this isn't just uh, a story about Israel's freedom, but a story about all of our freedom that we're looking for. And so far in this story, we've seen at the beginning of Exodus that we saw things are not how they're supposed to be. The people of Israel have lived in Egypt for 400 years, they were brought to Egypt because there's a big famine where they lived. And one of their family members brought them down to Egypt to have refuge. But then eventually that family member who knew the pharaoh at the time died. And over 430 years, they're like, what are these people doing here? Like there's so many of them. They forget they came here because of one of their family members served uh, the Egyptian empire. And then they're like, we need to take care of this so they don't rise up and attack us or revolt. And so they're like, let's enslave them and put them to work. And then secondly, let's start killing their, every baby that is a boy that's born to them. And so they're uh, murdering and enslaving the people of Israel. And God sees us and he sees this is not how it's supposed to be. And so God, we read that God sees and he hears their cries and he knows what's going on. And then he steps into action to do something about it through a man named Moses. And Moses is a Hebrew, an Israelite, who gets raised in the palace Of Pharaoh, That's, you know, we have to go back in the story to see how that got there. But then eventually he he runs because he murders an Egyptian. He runs out of the wilderness. And this is where he encounters God in the burning bush, a story where a lot of us are uh, probably familiar with, where God says, I want to use you to bring my people out of Israel. I want you to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, and I'm going to bring you out. And then last week we saw God uses these ten plagues uh, to tell Pharaoh, you need to let my people go. I mean, he tells them, let my people go if you don't. Here's what's going to happen. And so ten times, uh, well, nine times, Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let them go. And so God sends a plague, gets another chance. But says, no, sends another plague. And we saw uh, Pharaoh's hard heart there is why he's judged by God in that way. And last week we talked about how we all have that hard heart, resistant to what God is saying. And the blood of Jesus is what covers us and forgives us. So that brings us to today. They've left Egypt. God has liberated them through the plagues, they've left Egypt, and now they're on their way out of Egypt, and we actually, uh, the main chapters are chapters 14 to 15, but uh, chapter 13, verse 17 is where this all starts. It's on page 56, if you're using the Black Bibles from the back. Uh, page 56 is Exodus, chapter 13, verses 17. And here what we see is that, uh, I'll, I'll just read these verses, chapter 13, verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. And so God's like, here's this path which would bring us in conflict with the Philistines. I'm not going to lead them that way because I know they can't handle that right now. Verse 18, But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, or in some translations, the Sea of Reeds, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph, Joseph with them. Joseph was uh, the person that was part of their family that worked for the Pharaoh 400 years before these events. And he's what got his family down to Egypt, and he was working for the, the government. And people forgot who this, who, who's Joseph. They all forget. And so then they're like, why are these people here? Let's enslave them. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you will carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkot and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people." And so we're told like these real places, like their travel itinerary, um, giving us historical data of like, here's what happens, here's where they went. They didn't go that way, uh, but they went this way and then they stayed here and God's leading them. He's with them. His presence is with them that I have brought you out of Egypt and now I'm going to lead you uh, the rest of the way. And yet it's his presence is made manifest by uh, these pillars of cloud and fire that are leading him. And then chapter 14, we start getting to the verses that uh, were read for us earlier by Maggie uh, says then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea, and in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I'll harden Pharaoh's heart. to will pursue them, and I'll get glory over Pharaoh, and all his host And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And so God tells them, to turn back. And he gets them in this position where he is saying, I know what Pharaoh's going to do. I know Pharaoh is going to harden his heart and he's going to come after them again. He's going to pursue them. Like, you know, so imagine it's like here they are in Egypt and God liberates them. And then they leave and God brings them to this place where they're along this sea. And God knows Pharaoh is going to leave Egypt and he's going to come after them. So he set them up in this position and he puts them in this place for a purpose. Then verses 5 through 9, we're told how the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed. They're like, what have we done? Uh, verse, um, verse 5, what is this we've done that we've let Israel go from serving us? They're like, we just let our whole workforce go. This was a big, a big mistake. And so their minds are changed. And then in verse 8, uh, so we get, last week we talked about Pharaoh's hard heart. So we see here that his mind was changed, his heart is hardened. But then in verse 8, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by pi hi in front of Baal-Zephon. And so it's both. As God has revealed himself to Pharaoh, that causes Pharaoh to harden his heart, but Pharaoh is also hardening his own heart. And then what happens in verses 10 through 12, it says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, and the the word behold, it kind of is... uh, inviting us to put ourselves in there from their perspective. We've got this sea, and they're hanging out, and then I look up, and oh my gosh, Pharaoh is coming, these chariots. I see the dust. I see them coming in the distance. And we're told that when, behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, "Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, you have only to be silent. And so Pharaoh pursues, and they're, they're fearful and they cry out. And you hear what they say, Uh, they prefer, it would have been better to be slaves in Egypt than to be out here. And in many ways, it's like that's familiar and predictable. They know, at least they knew it was coming, like sure we're getting beat up, sure we're enslaved, but at least we know there's food, at least we know we're not dying, like we're living at least. And so often, we'd rather stay with what is familiar than risk trusting that. We have to step out into something and trust. It's like, I know how this works. This is familiar. It's predictable. Even if it's enslaving me and terrible for me, at least I know how it works. It's predictable. If I step out of that, then there's a risk there and I have to trust. And what I find always helpful for looking at these stories is that sometimes we think, God, if if I saw what happened in the Exodus, if I saw the plagues and I saw all this stuff, I saw the fire of cloud, you know, God, if you just showed up in my backyard in a pillar of cloud and fire, I would surely believe. But look at look what these people are experiencing. They just saw all this crazy stuff. And, it's, and they're like, just let us die, Moses. Like is God, it's like they so quickly doubt God's ability to come through for them. And so we always struggle with that. But what Moses says is, fear not. Fear not. They were greatly afraid. And he says, fear not to them. Then God gives them instructions, verses 15 to 18. Why are you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I'll harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them. And I'll get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. In verse nineteen, the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the hosts of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. And so God is like, I've brought you here, now I'm going to protect you, and now I'm going to do something on your behalf. And God tells Moses, He tells him, This is what I want you to do. I want you to stretch out your hand, stretch out your staff over this sea that's sitting in front of you. Like you've got the sea on this side and you've got Egyptians on this side and they're sitting right here and there's no way out. They're backing into the a corner and God says, I want you to stretch out your hand over the sea and I'm going to make a way for you to get through this. And the Egyptians start pursuing them. God divides the waters of the sea and the Egyptians start pursuing them but as they go through the wheels of their chariots it's like getting clogged up by some of the you know wet sand or dirt or whatever and then they're also being kind of thrown into this panic by uh, this the presence of God there. And then the Egyptians recognize, they say, the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. So they're seeing, what is going on here? This should be super easy. These people have got nothing. We've got our best stuff out here, our chariots, our horsemen, and yet we can't even touch these people. And so like God is fighting for them, they say. And then verses 26 through 29, after Israel has crossed through this sea and the Egyptians are pursuing them, God says, okay, stretch out your hand again. And now what's going to happen is that sea is going to come back and it's going to take out these Egyptians. Because remember, God said, who you see, these Egyptians you see, you shall never see again. And so then verse verse 29 of chapter 14, But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. So we're told this is how God saved them. And they see actually the Egyptians, I mean, probably, you know, this story in like kids, you know, learning books isn't going to have the dead bodies of the Egyptians floating up on the seashore, which is what we're told here. They saw them floating up on the seashore, and they saw the great power of the Lord that he used against them, and so what happens is they fear the Lord. Earlier, uh, they were afraid when they saw the Egyptians, and for, uh, Moses said, fear not, and now that God has fought for them, now they, instead of fearing the Egyptians, now they're fearing the Lord, that their their, their fear has been transferred over. Not like that, oh, God's going to do that to us, but this is the person that we actually have with us, that now we have reverence for him instead of for these people of what they can do to us. And then chapter 15 is this song, and it's interesting, you know. Sometimes the Bible can feel a little like a musical, <laughs> like you have something happen, and then there's like a song, you know. So like, imagine, you know, some people all of a sudden bust. And obviously, that's not what happened. But it's like, you know, did this song get written later? Did they come up with it on the spot? Was there a little, you know, kind of uh, impromptu thing going? But verse chapter 15 gives us this song, and the the theme of the song is this in the fir- very first verse, chapter 15, verse one: "I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously." The horse and his rider he is thrown into the sea. And you see that later on in verse 21. They have this song that the whole congregation sings. And then uh, a lady named Miriam, who's this, uh, related to Moses, sings too. Sing to the Lord, for he's triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. And really, when you go through this song, let me just read some. It's interesting to look. Okay, we saw the events described of what's going on. You know, you have the, you have the plagues happening. And we're hearing God is doing it. And then you have the sea uh, making a dry way for them to go through it. And so it's like, okay, how did that happen? Did God do it or did the wind do it? Did uh, when the locust came, did the wind blow the locusts in as a plague or did God send the locusts? And you see in the song that God uses the things of the world. He created this world. And so often how he works in our lives is through the ordinary operations of how this world works and through people And so how does God do this? How does he do this thing with the sea? So verse 2, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he's become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. And just notice all the my's there, that now Israel is coming to this place where it's like, this isn't just like the God of our ancestors, but this is our God. So they they say my strength, my song, my salvation, my God, my Father's God. And then they begin to describe God Verse 3, and remember when it says the Lord, um, earlier in Exodus, God revealed his name to the people of Israel. So when you see Lord in all caps, that's when it's using God's personal name in the Hebrew language. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty you overthrow your adversaries, you send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters." Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretch out your right hand, the earth, swallow them. And so that's the first part of the song where it's focusing on the past, what God had just done in the Exodus, in leading them out. And notice how it describes God. God as a man of war or a warrior, glorious in power, shatters the enemy, the greatness of his majesty. They say, Who is like you, God? majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds. And so they just saw this thing. They hadn't been enslaved. They've had Egypt murdering their babies. And this like they saw no hope of getting out. But then God comes in with these plagues and he brings them out of Egypt. And then Egypt is like, no, 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 we want them back. And God again fights for them. And now they're seeing the Egyptians aren't who we need to be afraid of. The Egyptians aren't the majestic ones, the ones glorious in power. They reached out their hand to Uh, attack us and oppress us, but then God stretched out his hand, brought his mighty hand against them, and so they're like, God is fighting for us, God is on our side. And then verses 13 through 18 really goes in, that's like the past, what God did in the Exodus, verses 13 through 18 looks forward to what's about to happen, is that God isn't just bringing them out of Egypt and being like, okay, figure it out, but he's bringing them to this land that he promised their ancestors, the land of Canaan. Uh, which we know is the land of Israel um, along the Mediterranean Sea there. And so God is bringing them out, and they're looking forward to how is God now going to help us in the future based on what he has done. And I love verse 13. It says, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. So God is leading them in steadfast love, these people whom he's redeemed, that's the name of the series, Redeemed for God. And redeemed is a like a slave word. And to redeem someone means they were in slavery and you paid the ransom price to bring them out of slavery and now you have redeemed them. And so God is saying, my people were enslaved and I have redeemed them. i paid the price to bring them out of slavery and now they are free. And they belong to him. And he says, you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. It's like God is bringing them home. It's like, I've brought you out of slavery, and now I'm bringing you home to me, to where I want to be with you. And the verses continue. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them, because of your great, the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people... Pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, o Lord, which is your hand, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. So they're like, as we and we see us later when they're getting close to the promised land, the land of Canaan. You hear stories where they're the first place they go and fight against is Jericho, and then you hear them saying, like, we've heard about you guys. We've heard about what you've done to Egypt, and that's what they're talking about here. That people are terrified of, like, we've heard what this God does for his people. And so God's, uh, even though news about him is going forward um, to, to help them, and he's leading them home. And a couple themes that we see. One is the phrase, on dry ground. And to us, that's like, okay, big deal, you know, dry ground. But there's four times that said God, they walked through the sea on dry ground and i take it to mean where there was no way god made a way like it was a sea and we walked on dry ground like going over and over in that like if somebody said what was that like it's like we walked on dry ground you know it was crazy like how, why is this? this shouldn't be possible where there was no way god made a way and this is where we come back to our word at the beginning a huge catastrophe a happy ending where it seemed furthest from possible, where it seemed impossible, and that leads to joy, like we, we saw no way, how are we going to get, here's a sea, here's Pharaoh's army, and here's us, what are we going to do? But what happened is God made a way, where there wasn't a way, we walked on dry ground. And it leads to joy, and you see that in the song, the song they sing, that they express this joy in song, and that's another theme, the victory, that God's, the song says, I will sing to the Lord, for he's triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea, and the truth is of that, if you've trusted in Jesus, these people are transferring their trust to God, like, you're the one that we're going to follow. And if we've trusted in Jesus as our king, the one we're going to follow, one day we're going to be singing those ro- words around his throne, seeing you made a way where there wasn't a way. You made a victory where I thought defeat was the only thing, and now we're going to sing those words to him. But a major f- theme, kind of a major theme through this chapter is of fear. In chapter 14, verse 10, it said, They looked and saw Pharaoh coming, and they had great fear. And so, if we just consider what's it like, what was it like to be them in that moment? Like, you're surrounded, you're stuck, you're trapped, you're hopeless, overwhelmed, they're despairing. And I wonder if there's things in your life right now that has you feeling that way. Like, I've gotten myself in this situation. Or I've got this thing that just keeps coming back to my life, or I've got this thing, this circumstance, and I just don't know how to deal with it. And I just feel surrounded. I feel trapped. I feel overwhelmed. I feel like I'm despairing. And I just, I just want to give you a moment, and we'll come back to it, to, if you have a bulletin or in your phone or something or just kind of mentally, to write it down. What are things right now that you feel like overwhelmed in or you're like, I don't see any way out of this. It's just, you know, I feel trapped into it. And I, you know, sometimes... Um, I feel like our, at least um, Katie and I's, like, immediate reaction is like, okay, we've got this problem. What can we do to get our way out of it? It's like there's, we're stuck, and it's like we've got we to gotta research. We've got to talk to people. There's a way out of this. And maybe sometimes you've tried that, or in this whatever this thing is that maybe you have is like, I've tried everything, and nothing could get me a way out of it. What's something right now? Maybe it's a, a person that's difficult, or maybe it's a, some suffering in your life that you're dealing with, or maybe it's a sin that keeps coming back to you and keeps grabbing onto you. I just want to give you like a minute of silence to think about that and write it down if you are willing to on something um, that you have. You might have that thing you wrote down, an area of life where you feel surrounded, no way out, stuck, trapped, hopeless, overwhelmed, despairing. What's interesting when we look at Israel is God actually put them in that place where they felt trapped, surrounded, overwhelmed, despairing, and God put them in that place for purpose. He said, this is, I have a reason for putting you in that spot. And that's the same, that's true for you too. And so this, the first fear they have is the fear of the Egyptians. But then what happens is, Moses speaks to him. he says, fear not. God is going to fight for you. All you need to do is be silent or be still, not, you know, despairing or worrying and then what happens God says I'm going to get glory over them and they're going to know and also you're going to know that I am the Lord this situation I've put you in it for a purpose and I'm going to fight for you and you just need to watch it and then what happens is God says I'm going to get glory over Pharaoh like right now you're who he's glorifying you're who he, you're he's he's who you're revering he's who you're afraid of he's who you think is mighty and strong and majestic but I'm going to transfer your I'm going to get glory back from him by showing you, I'm going to fight for you on your behalf. And then once God does it, we're told, so the people feared the Lord. And God wants you to know he's greater than what you're facing so that he can get glory over it. And he actually couldn't get glory over it unless he put you in that difficult situation to begin with. That if we never went through anything difficult, it would just be like, why would we need to trust God? Like, well, life is good. But when he puts us in situations for a purpose so he can say, I'm going to get glory over that thing. And I'm going to help you to not be so afraid of that. And instead, you're looking to me. And this picture that we're given of God here is a warrior who fights for his people. And went all the way back to Genesis, we talked in the beginning of this series that the original enslaver is not Pharaoh, but who stands behind every Pharaoh, who stands behind every figure who would want to pull us into uh, a, a slave or who would want to stop God's people from loving him and following him. It's the serpent in the garden or what we later hear the name of Satan or the devil. And what we see in Genesis 3 is that God says, yes, this has been brought into the world. Things are not the way it's supposed to be, but there's a snake crusher coming. There is a warrior coming who's going to defeat this enemy who has stood against you. And when the people of Israel later on, they saw, you know, God has fought for us and he's going to bring us this king, this warrior king who's going to defeat our enemies. They called him the Messiah, the anointed one, or in Greek, it's the Christ, and then they're, they're waiting, they're waiting, they're waiting. And then even in Luke chapter 1, we're, we're reading about, bef- even before Jesus' birth, that the Zechariah, um, one of Jesus' relatives, it has this. he sings a song, another musical moment. <laughs> he sings a song saying, God, you've raised up salvation for us. Someone who's going to free us from our enemies. Who's going to take us out of the hand of all who hate us. And so it's the same language. But then when Jesus comes, he's putting himself in this position where I'm coming to bring freedom. I'm coming to fight your enemies. But he doesn't fight the enemies everyone expected because people are expecting, yeah, it's going to be just like back in the day with Pharaoh. He's going to kick out the Roman Empire. We're going to get our land back. He's going to free us. He's going to defeat our physical enemies. But Jesus came to fight the enemies of sin and Satan and death. That those are who he defeats. And really, it's like pull back the curtain. and Who's behind Pharaoh? Well, it's the same person that's been there against humanity all along from the beginning and Jesus goes into the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry, just like Israel is going into the wilderness. And he confronts Satan, and he gets tempted, and he gets tested, and proves that he's the faithful son of God. And then as his first sermon is proclaiming liberty, freedom, I'm going to free people. And he frees them by forgiving them, frees them from their sin. That is like the same root word, forgive, is to release someone. But he also releases someone from demonic activity, that he's casting out demons. And Jesus says, I'm bringing freedom, but I'm not fighting the enemies that you think. It's not about the Romans. It's about who's behind all the Romans, who's behind everything. And then if we went all the way to the end of the Bible, Revelation 19, Jesus says, one day I'm going to return as a rider on a white horse. I'm going to defeat all who stand against God's people. He's going to defeat the army of darkness. And there's multiple metaphors used in the Bible for the cross of Jesus' death on the cross in our place. There's like I won't go through them. I'll just name them. There's a sacrificial system metaphor. There's a slave marketplace. There's the law court. There's relationships. But then one is the battlefield that at the cross, Jesus' death gave the decisive, defeating blow to the enemy in order to deliver us. And there's this word. It's called the uh, Christus Victor, Christ the victor. Jesus is the victor over sin and Satan and death. So at the beginning we talked about a U catastrophe. and just as Tolkien led his characters to need salvation, God led His people in a place where they needed salvation. Tolkien said this happy ending, when it seems furthest from possible, resonates because we all want it for our own story. We all want a happy ending, you know. As you know, we might think it's kind of like kid stuff to say, and they all lived happily ever after. But we actually long for that. We want that. We want stories to end in that way, and. Tolkien says, who wrote Lord of the Rings, says uh, everyone's longing for it. That's why we resonate with it. But between the Exodus and the Promised Land is the wilderness journey, a place of testing of faith, where there'll be a battle and God is going to fight. And there's, In the New Testament, there's all this battle imagery for the, uh, the Christian life. For instance, Ephesians 6, where Paul uh, is writing this letter to this church, and he's like, look, you're not fighting in flesh and blood. You're fighting against the spiritual powers of darkness. So put on the armor, not physical armor, on the spiritual armor you need for that and it's all the things that Christ has given you is the armor to fight against those powers and so how does that battle show up in everyday lives well Satan will use two big things sin and suffering to separate us from God and to drag us back into slavery and he uses them to convince you God's not really with you and God isn't really for you he's against you and so we could think well because I've sinned God isn't with me anymore and he's against me He's turned against me. And Satan would tell us, look at you. How could anyone love you, someone like you? And Satan wants to use that sin for us to believe that God doesn't love us, that he's against us and not with us. Or because of suffering. It means God isn't with me and he's against me. Suffering, we say, well, where are you, God? If you really were with me and if you really were for me, if you really loved me, this wouldn't be happening to me. There's an enemy at work. Proverb directly or indirectly, we're in a battle. You might feel like the Israelites, God, you're just going to let me die here? <laughs> like, what? why'd you lead me here? Why'd you lead me out here to die? And his goal is to turn us from God by convincing us that God has turned against us. But if we read this great passage in Romans chapter 8, I'm not going to explain it, but it's really one of the writers in the New Testament going into Why should we, we shouldn't have any reason to believe God is against us. Romans chapter 8, 31 through 39 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whether it's sin, who can be against us if God is for us? God... Gave his son to love us. And whether it's suffering, it does not separate us from the love of Christ. And the enslaver may try to lay claim to us, but Jesus, like we literally have these words in the Bible of him saying, They're mine. They belong to me. No one's going to snatch them out of my hands. And so the enemy cannot take you from Jesus. He says, No, they're mine, and no one can take them away. And you wrote that list earlier of things you might feel overwhelmed by or trapped in. And I just want you to write, you know, really simple thing to the side of it, or if you didn't write it down, that's fine. Because I want you to write a greater than symbol to represent that Jesus is greater than those. And just, I, this is how I remember greater than symbols. My wife's a math teacher. I could have asked hers. Is like greater than means, you know, that's this is what the symbol looks like. Is that that's the thing you want to eat? Do I want 10 fries or one fry? Ten fries greater than. I'm gonna eat that. So in this little thing of like, this is the stuff overwhelming me where I feel trapped, it's like, uh, well, Jesus is greater than. That thing that Jesus is always greater than the things that are around us. Whether it's sin, whether it's suffering, that He uh, takes away the power of sin by suffering in our place. He takes away the power of suffering by entering into what it's like to be us. He knows what it's knows what it's like to suffer, and He entered into it to overcome it. And so maybe you feel stuck, trapped, overwhelmed, doomed, <laughs> hopeless, no way out. But there is a way out to a happy ending. There's a path to freedom and it's Jesus. And so don't let those things have victory over you but rejoice in the victory that he's given you. Let's pray. Father, so often we can feel helpless. We so quickly get into situations where we feel completely overwhelmed. We don't know what to do. And we forget that you're in the picture too. That we look at our future and we don't see you in it. Lord, would you help us to live believing that you're with us, that you're for us, no matter what. In your son's name we pray. Amen.